Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, the infrastructure deal is still dead and what the end of Game of Thrones means for streaming TV services. But first, the war on vaping. So earlier this week, Senators Mitch McConnell and Tim Kaine introduced new legislation to raise the tobacco purchasing age from 18 to 21. It's something that's already the law in many states, but this would be a federal rule and is notable for several reasons. First, these guys don't agree on much of anything else. McConnell is the Republican Senate Majority Leader. Kaine was Hillary Clinton's running mate. Second, both senators are from states, Kentucky and Virginia, that grow a lot of tobacco. And for example, in Kentucky, the stuff is grown in 119 of the state's 120 counties. But McConnell and Kane introduced the bill anyway, in part because of their concerns about the increase in vaping by teenagers, many of whom don't realize that certain popular vaping pods contain more nicotine than do typical cigarettes. Moreover, research has shown that non-smoker teens who vape are more likely to eventually take up traditional smoking than are non-smoking teens who don't vape. Yep, it's a gateway smoke. Now, all of this comes after a year in which federal regulators have put in new rules on vaping companies, including restrictions on retail sales of fruit-flavored products that were most popular among teenagers. It was also a year in which the maker of Marlboro Cigarettes, a company called Altria, paid over $12 billion for an ownership stake in Juul, thus making the bond between e-cigarette and traditional cigarettes even stronger. The bottom line, vaping has created some very strange bedfellows, both in politics and in business. And for Americans, their health and liberty hangs in the balance. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. But first, this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Scott Gottlieb, who until this past April was commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and who yesterday announced he joined venture capital firm New Enterprise Associates to invest in bio-related startups. So, Scott, at your last job, you got the most attention for your efforts to restrict the use of e-cigarettes by minors. But now you're a venture capitalist. And as you know, other VC firms help kind of fuel the growth of companies like Juul. So if you take off your FDA hat and put on your VC hat, are these companies good investments? I won't be investing in them. I don't think that the promise that we foresaw with the vaping products really has borne out. If you go back to the summer of 2017, when we announced our comprehensive policy with respect to the regulation of nicotine and combustible cigarettes, we really saw the non-combustible products, the electronic nicotine delivery systems like e-cigarettes, as a potential opportunity to help currently addicted adult smokers transition off of combustible products onto products that we know are less harmful, we believe are less harmful. And this was especially important at a time that we were seeking to regulate nicotine into combustible products to render them minimally and non-addictive. We knew that there would be adults who still wanted to get access to satisfying levels of nicotine. And we knew that nicotine delivery existed on a continuum of risk with the nicotine replacement therapies like the gums and patches being the lowest risk form of nicotine delivery, but also things like e-cigarettes being a potentially reduced harm way to get access to nicotine, especially for those who still wanted to inhale it. But, you know, what we didn't foresee at the time was how quickly these would take off as really a cult fashion among young people and risk addicting a whole generation of kids on nicotine, some proportion of which we now know are going to migrate onto combustible products. So I think set against the backdrop of that youth epidemic, I don't think that these 
make as much sense as a public health tool anymore, especially when you're talking about the cartridge-based products. When you were running FDA, you know, a lot of the, when these discussions were happening, when you rolled out that program last year, those new sets of regulations last year, it got portrayed, at least in the press, a lot as FDA versus Juul or Juul versus FDA, depending on how you looked at it. Behind the scenes, do you feel that Juul was an honest negotiating partner with you guys, or did you feel that it was adversarial? If you look back historically at Juul, they were clearly marketing their products in a way that was bleeding into the youth market and was appealing to kids. And whether it was deliberate or not, that was the net result. I and mean, a lot of that youth use, I believe, was instigated by the way they were positioning their product in the marketplace. Now, they cleaned that up. And they repositioned how they were portraying that product and targeted more of an adult population. But in some respects, it was too late. You, know, you already had addicted and gotten a whole generation of kids hooked on this product and interested in using this product. I think where we weren't really dealt with in a straight way was in some of the discussions with the big tobacco companies and the representations they were making about their e-cigarette products where you know we had at least one large tobacco company telling us that they believe that the pod-based products and the flavored products in particular are one of the primary drivers of the youth addiction and the youth use of these products and the youth appeal of these products. And then they went out and made a major investment in Juul. So we're talking Altria here. We're talking Altria and Juul, and that certainly was inconsistent. I mean, what they were telling us, and not just privately, but publicly, they released the letter that they wrote to the agency publicly that they addressed to me. That was inconsistent with, I think, what they did from a business standpoint. I don't think we were dealt with in a completely honest fashion along the way. I think there must have been some, a lot of discussions and ideas going on behind the scenes with these companies that weren't being surfaced in, in their public discussions with us. Scott, there was a ruling after you left, but it relates to the time you were there. There was a judicial ruling that basically said that you guys had too slow walked a review of e-cigarette products. You called it recently a bad ruling. Can you explain why you think what the judge there did was bad and, and what is the pending outcome of this? Right. So remember the deeming rule itself, the Tobacco Control Act was passed in 2009. It took the agency a little less than a decade to actually draft the deeming rule, and I was the one that implemented it. So three months after I arrived, I implemented the regulation that applied regulation to what we call the newly deemed products, which includes these cigarettes, but also includes cigars. The only portion of that rule that I delayed the implementation of was the application deadline for the e-cigarettes. And the reason we did that was twofold. One, we didn't have any of the regulations or guidance out explaining how companies could comply with that new rule. Typically, the agency doesn't implement regulatory requirements on industry until it has the implementing regs and guidance in place to explain to industry how to comply with those new rules, those new requirements, and the application deadline being the most difficult new requirement that these products would now have to comply with. But also, we wanted to give the e-cigarettes more time to get quality applications together because we, again, foresaw them as an opportunity to help currently addicted adult smokers get off of combustible tobacco at the very time that we were seeking to regulate nicotine levels in that combustible tobacco to more quickly migrate them off of those products. What the court said was that we didn't have the discretion to delay those application deadlines. I think the court's probably wrong. I think that the precedent that that would set would be you know, a challenge to the agency's authority. And I think eventually that court decision would be overturned if the agency appealed. Now, that said, if I was sitting at the agency right now, you know, I'd be having a very intense debate about whether it's worth appealing that decision or whether I would use the court ruling as a way to more quickly implement where the agency was heading anyway when I left, which was to impose those application deadlines sooner as a result of all the youth use that we were seeing. Remember, the last thing that I did 
at the agency was get out a guidance document that sought to restrict access to the flavored products, but also require those applications to come in sooner. So we were moving in that direction anyway. Earlier this week, bipartisan bill in the Senate, Mitch McConnell uh, of Kentucky and Tim Kaine of Virginia, introducing a bill to raise the federal minimum age for buying any sort of cigarette, whether traditional or e-cigarette, from 18 to 21. And lots of individual states already have it at 21. Do you support that? I absolutely do. I think that, that it would really help with respect to just the public health burden overall with respect to tobacco sales to minors and to youth, but particularly with e-cigarettes, because a lot of the sales of the cigarettes that we see in high schools aren't necessarily 16-year-olds walking into convenience stores and buying these products, but it's enterprising 18-year-olds who can legally buy these products, high school seniors, buying a whole bunch and then selling them inside the schools. And so I think if you raise the age of 21, it makes that kind of secondary market more difficult. Now those sales to the 18-year-olds will be illegal. So in terms of a one way to address the youth epidemic of vaping, I think this is a useful step. Scott Gottlieb, thank you so much for joining us. My final two right after this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up was yesterday's clown show in Washington, D.C., when Nancy Pelosi accused President Trump of a cover up in regards to his refusal to comply with congressional subpoenas. And then Trump storming out of a meeting with Pelosi and Chuck Schumer in order to complain to reporters in the Rose Garden. I told Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, I want to do infrastructure. I want to do it more than you want to do it. But you know what? You can't do it under these circumstances. Why it matters beyond the ridiculousness of it and the bubbling constitutional crisis is that the meeting Trump left was supposed to be about infrastructure or more specifically, how to pay for a $2 trillion upgrade to America's bridges, roads, airports, power grids, and other essential parts of our collective nonpartisan lives. Any infrastructure deal was already a long shot, but Trump now says there is no shot if the investigations don't stop. Or put another way, the infrastructure bill that never was will never be. And finally, an Axios-Harris poll conducted after the Game of Thrones finale found that 16% of HBO subscribers plan to cancel their subscriptions now that the show is over. Moreover, other data shows that consumers are more than 30% likely to cancel any subscription streaming service after the show or series they're watching is ended, and that goes across age groups. In the tech world, this is called churn, and it's not at all what streaming services want. So don't be surprised to see them offer up more and more perks, like free subscriptions to music or another sort of service, in order to keep you around once your favorite show is gone. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great National Taffy Day. And we'll be back on Tuesday for another Pro Rata Podcast.